Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, and let me read to you, with your eyes seeing the words, the verses that I used to open this service a few minutes ago. Let's think just a few more minutes on the everlasting covenant spoken of in Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. We went back a few pages to Hebrews chapter 9 and saw there that the Old Testament was called a covenant. That everything in that covenant, the furniture, the ordinances, they were weak, they were pitiful, they were carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation, the time of Reformation being John, Jesus, and the apostles that changed the worship of God to the New Testament. That is why the Bible tells us in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John, since that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. John started the time of Reformation. Jesus furthered it by telling the woman of Samaria, Woman, you don't know who you're worshiping in Samaria, and they're not going to be worshiping God in truth in Jerusalem much longer, because the Father seeks those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that spirit is the internal religion of the New Testament that doesn't involve carnal ordinances of furniture and animal blood and a tent and priestly robes and all the other paraphernalia that went with the Old Testament. So there was a time of reformation. We looked in Hebrews 9 and saw that salvation is by a testament, a last will and testament of God. He's promised us all of heaven, all of earth, everything, our enemies, all the riches of glory, every spiritual blessing, to spend eternity with God, to be joint heirs of all that heaven has to offer with Jesus Christ. And that is put into force by Jesus dying on behalf of God, and by that means we are saved. That's all in Hebrews 9. Jesus offered Himself without spot to God, and God accepted Him, and that made us accepted in the Beloved. Let's come to 2 Samuel 23. I want you to see the words. I tried to, to explain to you from Hebrews 13, 20, and 21 that you can sit down with two verses in a quiet corner, Now the God of peace. And think about the God of peace and the peace He's made for you. He made peace to the Prince of Peace. He made peace in the temple that Zerubbabel built. You all, do you all remember and know how much your pastor likes Haggai chapter 2 that God would shake the heavens and the earth and that this latter house that Zerubbabel was building, though it was very inferior to Solomon's house, the desire of all nations would come and visit that house? Did Jesus Christ visit the temple that Zerubbabel built? He did in 30 A.D., in 29 A.D., in 28 A.D. And you know what God said? In this place, I will make peace. Because it was in that temple that Zerubbabel built that he was ashamed of because it was so small that the veil was rent from top to bottom when Jesus Christ died on Calvary. In this place, I will make peace. Which temple was better? Which one do you like the most? I go with Zerubbabel! And the second house, the latter house, because Jesus visited that house. He preached in that house. He cleaned it out of money changers. 
And the disciples had understanding given to them in a moment from Psalm 69. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Jesus visited that house. The desire of all nations came into that temple. That temple's been gone for 2,000 years. The Bible is not hard to understand. That's a prophecy that only a few people on earth understand. They still think that there's another house and Jesus is going to come to another temple built in Jerusalem. The shaking of the heavens and the earth, that's not literal. It's never been literal in the Bible. That is a figurative expression of turning religious things upside down because Jesus furthered the reformation of the Old Testament into the New Testament when he visited that house and tore the veil apart because from that moment on, we can go straight into the presence of God because of what Jesus Christ did for us by making peace in that house. He told Zerubbabel, God owns all the silver and the gold. God threw Zerubbabel through. Haggai told Zerubbabel, I have all the silver and the gold. Don't worry that your house doesn't look as fancy as the temple that Solomon built me. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Because the desire of all nations came to that one. The Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 12 quotes Haggai and speaks of the shakings of the heaven and the earth as already past. Wherefore? Because he's already shaken away the Old Testament kingdom. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. It'll never be shaken away. Let us serve God. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Do you know how to put those verses? They've been given to you over and over again for you to put together in your minds and understand the beauty of the New Testament. But David had quite a bit of comfort from the Holy Spirit even in the Old Testament. And this is how he died. And in 2 Samuel 23, we have his last words. I won't read all these to you. It's very dramatic because David was the beloved of Israel. He was the beloved of God. There's more about David than all other men in the Bible. More details of his life than all other Bible characters put together. You know more about David, his wives, his children, what went on in his family, his childhood, his youth, his old age, how he died, what he did, how he thought about the Lord. 150 psalms of how he thought about the Lord. On and on we know about David. So it's very dramatic when it gives us his last words. And there's a lot of repetition. But verse 5 is what we want. And it's one of those verses that you can look at and just enjoy. Although my house be not so with God, have you lived in such a way that you have any leg to stand on before the God of heaven? No, we can all commiserate with those words. Although my house be not so with God. I have not lived the way that verses 3 and 4 describe the perfect man would live. Because he's talking about Jesus Christ. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. My family's falling apart around me. I have sons killing sons. And I know that it's going to come through one branch of that family, and it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to sit on my throne forever, and it's all my salvation. Without the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise that I have by God for Him, I wouldn't have any hope, but I have the everlasting covenant. Hebrews 13 tells us that it's Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and it was through His blood that He put that covenant into force. For those of you that read Psalm 89 last night, it is an extended prophecy about the Son of David through David as this ruler right here and the everlasting covenant. We believe that we are saved by a plan 
And therefore, God is not trying to save us because He planned to save a certain group of men and He sent the Savior of those men and He had prepared the eternal inheritance for those men all before the foundation of the world. We believe that with all our hearts. And the last will and testament of God that involved all those benefits that gave eternal life to those in the book of life was by the means of death. There is a song written that some sing. There is a new name written down in glory. That is heresy. There are no new names written down in glory. The names were written there before the foundation of the world. Ever sing that song? Where in the world they get that notion? There's a new name written down in glory. You know, we'd get so excited when someone would come forward and accept Jesus into their heart, and we thought that a new name was being written down in glory. There's not a scrap of evidence for that. The names were written down in glory before the foundation of the world. They were given to Jesus Christ by name before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ was assigned to die for them before the foundation of the world. Their eternal inheritance was being prepared before the foundation of the world. There's no new names being written down in glory. And there's no names written behind someone's name, as a young man told us a few minutes ago, as some so-called evangelist taught you this past week. An evangelist is a man who goes and preaches the gospel to those that have never heard. What was an evangelist doing at Bob Jones University? Their idea of an evangelist? It's a man with five canned sermons, and he travels from church to church, preaches Monday through Friday. His five canned sermons, 50 times a year, takes two weeks vacation, and fleeces another man's flock 50 times a year. I grew up in that system. That's what they call an evangelist. There is absolutely no Bible evidence for a man called an evangelist doing that kind of a work at all. The right. Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that says that other men that fleece take, take advantage of another man's flock are terrible men. Yes. Right. They float into a church. They can preach five light-hearted, frothy sermons and entertain them with, with a different personality and a different delivery manner. They don't deal with a single problem that the church has. They don't know anything about being a pastor. And they call themselves an evangelist. There is no office like that in the New Testament. There is no office like that in the New Testament. They call it a revival. We're going to have a revival. The only way you're going to have a revival is if God sends His Holy Spirit down from heaven and turns lives and hearts upside down. You can't make a revival. If we could schedule a revival, we'd schedule it right now. We'd cancel this service. Right now. I'd say amen, we'd get this thing over with and we'd have a revival. And Lord, we're sincere about this because if you want to send revival right now, revive us again, right now. Revive us. We'll take it. But don't tell me about a revival service. All it means is some new personality coming in. It's a better cheerleader than the pastor because they're used to the pastor from 30 years of boredom. And so the new guy comes in. He can always out-preach the man who's been there 30 years. You could. Listen, if I let my kids go spend the night at your house, they always think that living at your house is better than my house. (laughs) They always come home and say, come on, can't you figure, you can all figure that out, can't you? All of that was to say, there's no such thing as an evangelist the way they describe it. The arrangements were made before the foundation of the world for a reason. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There are very real reasons given in the Bible as to why salvation is the way it is. Was there a covenant before the world began? Yes. 
The Lord Jesus Christ was set up by covenant. He didn't even exist yet as Jesus, the Son of Man. He was the Word of God. But we were already put in Jesus Christ. He was already foreordained by covenant that He would come and die. I've already said some of these verses, but I want to read 1 Peter 1.20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The Jews that Peter wrote to. They got to, they got to hear about Him from eyewitnesses. We get to hear about Him from the eyewitnesses that wrote it down. Doesn't that get you excited? These are eyewitness accounts. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, he said, we didn't give you fables when I, we told you about the glory of His coming on the Mount of Transfiguration, but we were there when we heard a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son. But you know, Peter went on to say that the word that you have in your laps right now is more sure than hearing God's voice from heaven. What those men wrote down. Did you hear Brother Newell when he read Hebrews chapter 2, 1 through 14 to us? Said that it was spoken to us by them that heard him and confirmed by signs from heaven. You have that in writing. The apostles were a great group of men. They were special men handpicked by Jesus Christ who with their own eyes saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And they went over to him. Okay, Lord, I'll do what you... My Lord and my God. Do you know that's in the Bible? Right. Who was it? Thomas. Thomas. Go ahead, Thomas. Eyewitnesses. I wasn't going to. Brother. Eyewitnesses. They wrote it down. The Holy Spirit gave them power to raise the dead to confirm everything they said. And we have it in the New Testament. 27 books. Praise the Lord. No furniture to worry about. No tabernacle to worry about. No priest, scapegoats, blood of bullocks or anything like that. The blood's been shed once for us. We are saved according to a plan by God choosing who would be saved, choosing the one that would do the saving and making sure it all worked out by the perfect obedience of that one who died for us so that he would get all the glory. All the glory. All the glory. First Corinthians chapter 1, starting at the bottom of the chapter and working back up. Verse 31, that, 1 Corinthians 1, 31, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. When we get to heaven, you will not be thanking some soul winner that got you there. You will be thanking the lover of souls, the Lord Jesus Christ who got you there. That is the only one you'll be thanking. Because the Lamb is all the glory in that place. The Lamb is the glory of heaven. Revelation 20, 1 and 2 tell us that. That, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Let's back up to 29 and 30. That no flesh should glory in His presence. God will not allow any man to glory in His presence. The Apostle Paul will not be glorying in the presence of God in heaven. All he did was get the Gospel... Do you think Paul had once had, had worked up to the fact where God now owed him some glory? Do you think Paul felt that way? Have you ever read anything like that about Paul? Everything I read about Paul, he was a debtor yet. He was the debtor. God wasn't the debtor. Paul was the debtor. And he was bound to preach the gospel until he dropped dead of the big one. He was going to preach until he fell dead. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 30, but of him... Notice, I want you to notice these little prepositional phrases like right now. But of Him, 
Are ye in Christ Jesus? How do you get into Christ Jesus? God chose you in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.4. And it tells you right, it saves the word chosen because he's already used it five times, which is why we're backing up in the chapter. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Is there anything else you want? Those are four things I love. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Of him are ye in Christ Jesus. God put us in Christ Jesus and God made Jesus Christ the fulfillment and the fullness of wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption for all of us. This is our salvation. That no flesh should glory in His presence. Do you like this kind of a sandwich? This is a sandwich I like. Verse 29 is one piece of bread that feeds my soul. Verse 31 is another piece of bread that feeds my soul. They both come out of the same loaf because it says that no flesh should glory in His presence. That those who glory should glory in the Lord. And what's in the middle? God put me in Christ Jesus. And God made Jesus Christ an all-sufficient Savior by making Him my righteousness, my wisdom, my sanctification and redemption. This is the Word of God. This is a a message sent down from heaven. These words were written by eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ and confirmed by powerful miracles. The Apostle Paul could do anything. He could mail a handkerchief and heal the sick so that you would believe what he wrote. Let's back up. Let's back all the way up to verse 26. Well, then how, how did God do it in such a way that he gets all the glory and no flesh can glory? Because God did the choosing. That's why. Verse 26, For ye see your calling, brethren. You can see it. You can look around this room and see your calling. You can see your calling, brethren. How that not many wise men, after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called, ordained to eternal life. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen... The foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. Salvation is by election to cut man completely out of it. And if your doctrine of salvation gets man any glory, disgusting words, young man, If your doctrine of salvation gets man any glory, it doesn't fit 1 Corinthians chapter 1. No flesh can glory in His presence. Because He did the choosing. And that's how we get in Him, who is made unto us perfect wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Let's keep backing up. Verse 22. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. That's their natural tendencies by nature and culture. By nation and culture. The Jews wanted signs. Because to prove that you were a true prophet, you had to pull some, pull some miracle. You had to call fire down from heaven like Elijah did in the prof, on the, uh, the altar there in front of the prophets of Baal. You had to perform a miracle to prove that you were a true prophet of God. The Jews require a sign. Remember they came to Jesus after he had done 17,361 miracles throughout Judea and said, show us a sign. Do you remember? Brother John Fisher and I were talking about how blind can a man get? How, how can God blind a man that has intelligence? And, and there's a lot of wires in, in wire nuts upstairs from an intellectual, natural standpoint, but they cannot see the things of the kingdom of God. 
How could they dare say those words? When I read Matthew chapter 12 and they say, show us a sign. Taking a great storm at sea to a great calm with one short sentence. That's a, that's a decent sign. Raising the daughter of Jairus from the dead. That was a decent sign. Taking a little boy's fish fillet sandwiches from McDonald's and feeding 5,000 men plus women and children and taking up 12 baskets full afterwards after they're all filled. That was a decent sign. Show us a sign. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. The Greeks worship the philosophical, intellectual hallucinations and writings and teachings of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all the other teachers of the Greek nation. The Lord knows this. Today, before you build a church building, you go and do a market survey and you find out what is in that community and what market niche do we want to reach. This is how all churches are done today. Except the churches of Jesus Christ. They do a market survey. They pick the market niche that they want. They build the building in the proper place because it's location, location, location. Just like for a retail business. Then they fit the message for the audience they want. They fit the music, volume, uh, artists, lyrics to the audience they want. And they build a church. The Lord did a market survey. He found out that the Jews wanted a sign. The Jews would get excited if you could do miracles that they approved of. Raising the dead, stopping storms, opening the eyes of the blind, and unstopping the ears of the deaf. That wasn't good enough for them. But if you could call fire down from heaven like Elijah, they would follow you. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. They wanted polished orators that could get up and unload on them and move an audience. But we, with God knowing what they wanted, but we preach Christ crucified. Why didn't Paul give the Jews a few signs? Why didn't Paul give the Greeks a little wisdom? Do you know what he's going to tell them in the first five verses of chapter 2? That I refused to preach with wisdom of man's words. Because if I were to preach with the wisdom of man's words, then men would get converted based on my power to influence them rather than the power of God. But they do the opposite today. They modify the message and the delivery to affect the audience. We're still trying to figure out why God gets all the glory. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews. Jesus Christ, our Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, the son of David, the one we've been waiting for, being the poor beggarly son of a carpenter who died on the cross at the hands of the Romans and didn't deliver us from that oppressive empire, is a stumbling block. Are you all with me when I use a long sentence like that? The Jews couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that Jesus of Nazareth could possibly be the Messiah of the Old Testament because He didn't do for them what they thought they wanted, and that was to be delivered from Rome. They needed to be delivered from someone worse than Rome. They needed to be delivered from the power of the devil. And I'm thankful that a stronger man came that got me out of the strong man's palace and spoiled his goods and grabbed me up and took me out of that house and made me his own. You want drama, brother? How's that? The palace of the strong man. It's safe. We couldn't get away until a stronger man came and got me. And he didn't ask me. He just busted in during the night and grabbed me out of my bed and took me out of the palace of the strong man. It's Luke 11. Read it. It's real. He spoiled principalities and powers. He took their valuable stuff. That wasn't me, but that was you. And he took me home. We preach Christ crucified. 
Unto the Jews, the preaching of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks, it's foolishness. If we would all go to seminary and learn to speak with a little more polish and had a better pulpit manner, the Greeks would accept us. Do you understand? If we were to use theological terms and refer to the Greek language, the Greeks would like it. Come on. Follow along, children. If we would talk about the Greek says this and the Greek says that, then the Greeks would like us. Because they want, they seek after academic wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach a stumbling block to the Jews and we preach foolishness to Greeks. But unto them which are called, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. A man that is called. I don't care what you make the call. Go ahead and make anything you want. I'll tell you what I believe it is. It means ordained to eternal life. When Paul was called to the ministry, he was also appointed to the ministry. He was ordained to the ministry. We have a verse like Acts 13:48 that says, As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That's how I understand the word call. I don't believe the gospel call is in here at all because it's talking about the gospel and it's talking about something that happened before they heard the gospel. Right. They're talking about a call that takes place before you hear the gospel call. But unto them which are called... What is that call? I believe it's the ordination to eternal life. Like Acts 13, 48, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. But unto them which are called. There's a category of people, some of the Jews, some of the Greeks, who are called by God, appointed to eternal life, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. When they hear the preaching of the cross, when they hear the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified, they perceive it as the power and wisdom of God. Look at the power of God and look at the wisdom of God in sending a virgin-born son that would die on the cross, be raised the third day from the dead, sit at God's right hand, and be a sufficient sacrifice to pay for sins in the eyes of an infinite judge. That is the power and wisdom of God. The calling by God comes first. The point is God is not trying to save anyone. He saves And you make that call whatever you want it. If you're called, do you know that you end up glorified? And if you're called, do you know how your calling got started? You were predestinated to it. So there's there's an unbreakable chain from God's predestination all the way to glorification. And in the middle is calling. And it's after that calling when you hear the gospel. If you're a Jew and you are looking for a sign, you don't care about signs anymore. Here you are, a Jew. Yesterday, before God regenerated you or opened your heart, you wanted signs. All you could think of is the book of Deuteronomy that says a prophet has to bring a sign to pass for you to know that he's a prophet of God. Today, you hear this apostle using rude speech and contemptible in appearance. That's what Paul said about himself, and the, the Corinthians were glad to say amen. Have you ever read First and Second Corinthians? They thought that Paul was pitiful. Base in appearance, contemptible in speech, rude in speech. We don't know what his problems were. You know, I've speculated, trying to figure out that thorn in the flesh. You know, you can speculate that it was his eyesight, but you don't have very much ground to stand on with that. Whatever it was, it was something he tried to get rid of, and he wasn't a very pleasant guy. Nothing to appeal to the flesh. And you know what? He dumbed his presentations down. I want to tell you something about Paul. He didn't score 500 on the SAT, okay? Just cut it. Paul, was he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. 
He was very gifted because when he needed to use a little bit of oratorical skills, like with King Agrippa, go read it. Go see who you think did better. Tertullian that was hired speaker and brought up out of Jerusalem or the Apostle Paul. When I read this kind of stuff, you know, I think he did a pretty good job. Now, I know it was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but Paul knew how to speak and write well. But do you know he dumbed his message down? Chapter, do you, are you, Brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. 1 Corinthians 2.1 I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I wasn't going to tell you about all my rabbinical learning that I had at the feet of Gamaliel, about the history of the Jews, the Jewish nation, and all the, ra- ra- the writings of the rabbis. I didn't do any of that. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. All you have to do is tell the simple little story. The creator God of heaven sent his son to die in the place of elect sinners, that their adoption could be affected by that death. He's given eternal heaven to them, and they're going home to be with him. Jesus lived in this world for 33 and a half years, died at the hands of the Roman government at the instigation of the Jews, was buried in a tomb for three days and three nights, and according to his promise, he rose from the dead and sits at God's right hand, ruling over the universe, and he's coming any day to split this atmosphere open and to take all of his own to him forever and ever. You hear that simple little message? That is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard in my life. Go back to that Jew. Yesterday, he wanted signs. Today, he hears this little runt of a man standing in Oh, I said that one time in a 90-minute sermon, and a person threw the whole sermon out because I called Paul a runt. We don't know what he was, except he was base, contemptible. Go read about Paul. Here's this little man. I was on the road to Damascus. How did it happen to me? I was on the road to Damascus. And he tells the story of his conversion. And he preaches Jesus Christ crucified without any enticing words of man's wisdom. That is the greatest thing I ever heard. I believe that is absolute truth. That, that matches everything inside, even though you may not be able to consciously say that. I love that message. And then he says, let's sing about it. And you hear a simple melody of people around you singing that believe that. And it strikes a chord in your heart and you want to sing along with them. Because you are one of God's sheep that he is saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, if you don't have that inside of you that loves Jesus Christ and loves to sing with the saints that are standing around you, then you need to search your soul and get down on your knees and ask God what's wrong with you and repent of your sins and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to have mercy upon your soul, to forgive you of your sins. Do you know what he'll say? Your sins are forgiven you. Fear not. Stand up. Isn't that what he said to John in Revelation chapter 1? But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, the ones that considered Jesus a stumbling block, the ones that wanted wisdom, put them together when they're called, and they hear the little guy in, in stuttering speech tell them about Jesus. They see the power of God and they see the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. No matter how strong a Jew might be or no matter how strong a Greek might be in what they wanted, the weakness of God coming through an earthen vessel like the Apostle Paul 
was powerful enough to break down those walls because they were called men. They had their hearts opened by the power of God. God had drawn them so that they would come to Jesus Christ when they heard the gospel. But God's work came first. God wasn't trying to influence them by Paul's preaching. God had already made them the called so that when they heard Paul's preaching, they responded totally different. All of that is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 22 down through 31. Now you should understand the last verse when it says, As it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. That God would choose certain men, then call them, then send a man to preach to them something that to an ordinary hearer, without a work of God already being done in their hearts, would have been rejected. That is the power and wisdom of God, and God gets all the glory. He gets all the glory for the first phase of salvation, second, third, fourth, and fifth. We have our responsibility in that fourth phase, but if it wasn't for God's blessing, it wouldn't amount to anything. Believest thou this? Christine? John chapter 6. Just a minute. I want our children to know these things, and I want you to delight in them. I have 16 pages of single-space notes. I brought six because I thought that would be enough. I'm halfway through the first page. I'm not, it's nothing. I love this church because you have called me to do something, and you support me to do it. And I love doing it, and I love the truth of it. I have, a, I have a fetish, I have a problem, I have an obsession about these outlines. But there's so much in the Word of God. Amen. My wife tells me, would you just turn that thing off and just pick up your Bible and start doing it? If anybody comes after me ever, or if anybody wants to see a lot of verses, I want them out there. And thank you, Brother Matthew, for giving me something that... I, if God's able to use it with any, and I know that there are men that read them and look at them and, and delight in detail, but there's so many details. Right now, I just want to be as simple as possible to excite our hearts. I hope we love Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What do you, what do you want to think about him? Did you like him in Revelation chapter 5 when he, when he appeared there in the throne room of God? Did you like him just now in the upper room when Thomas said, I won't believe until I see, and all of a sudden Jesus is there at all? I bet he regretted those words real fast. All of a sudden, Jesus is there, but you know what his response was? My Lord and my God. The disciples come to Jesus in John 6. Do you like this one? Oh, this is where we are? The disciples come to Jesus in John 6. Don't you know that what you said offended them was hard for them? Don't you know that's a hard saying? Why do you keep saying you've got to eat and drink me in order to have eternal life? Why do you keep saying that? Oh, you think that's hard? Let me give you another one. This is what Jesus said. Verse 60. John 6, 60. One of, the, one of my favorite sermons I ever preached to you was several years ago from John chapter 6, first verse to the last verse. It is a wonderful, wonderful chapter. Amen. If Jesus was ever trying to save men, it was in John 6 he, could, he had the advantage right. because he had just filled their bellies and they came wanting to make him king and he tortured them with language. Yeah. He told them, you seek after bread that will fill your bellies, but I'm the bread of heaven. Unless you eat me and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And he just kept repeating it over and over till they all left. Right. Verse 60, 
Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? How effective is this kind of talking with this crowd? Are you, uh, totally different than the way evangelism is done today. Don't you know that doesn't work in these circles? Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Does this offend you? Is the way I'm talking, does that bother you? Does this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Are you going to be able to handle that? Wait a minute. I thought you were born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. What do you mean ascend up where you were before? Well, he gave them a real one to hang to think about. You going to be able to handle that one? It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Unless you're born again and have the spirit of God in you and you are a spiritual man, they're all foolishness to you. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. He is explaining his approach to a crowd. They're not real believers anyway. Just trust me. It's the spirit that profits. Everyone that is spiritual is going to stay. Those that are of the flesh are going to leave. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Because he wouldn't modify his message to meet the audience, they left him. They asked him to. They were offended. He knew they were offended. He wouldn't. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, chase them down and offer them another free meal. Medical care and a well dug in their village that doesn't have a well. Are you, is that what Jesus said? No. He turned to his own twelve and said, are you going to go away also? Yeah. And I, I, all this is to work up to our brother Peter. Sometimes we pick on Peter a little too much. But listen, when there was an opportunity to say something, guess who got it said? Right. It was Peter. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe. We believe. Let them leave. We believe and are sure that Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you believe and are you sure? Do you believe and are you sure? What are you going to do about it? What are we in John 6 for? Jesus didn't try to save anyone because Jesus saved according to a plan. He didn't lose a single one, and that's what we're going to close with. So we come back to verse 38. John 6, 38. If you want to hear all the details, you can go look up a six-page, single-spaced outline on John chapter 6. It's at least six pages long. It's a wonderful chapter. John 6, 38. Jesus said, it's in the red writing in your Bibles, isn't it? I have an Oxford wide margin. It has a no red writing. Is it red writing? I know it is. Jesus is speaking. For I came down from heaven. Why did God send His Son down from heaven to earth? For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. This is God's will. The will that we had read to us from Ephesians chapter 1, that He doeth according to the good pleasure of His own will. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, 
This is God's will in the matter of salvation, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. That is the will of God in the matter of salvation. It's not an attempt to save. It's not an offer to save. Jesus didn't try to do anything. He was going to do the will of God and he wouldn't lose a single one. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Some will say, well, what about verse 40? And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. How do you know that you're in the will of God in verse 39? That's what verse 40 is there for. How do you know? God gave you to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, I'm going to do what God told me to do, and I'm not going to lose one of these that God gave me to die for and to save, and I'm going to raise up every single one of them at the last day. Well, how do you know He's going to raise up you? Because if you believe on His Son, Jesus Christ, that separates you from the large crowd that was in John chapter 6 that only wanted their bellies filled because they were belly worshippers. So that you know you're one of Jesus Christ's sheep. In John chapter 10, this whole conversation takes place with different words. How do you know you're one of the sheep of Jesus Christ? He said to the Pharisees, the group that went away, but ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. If a person doesn't believe, it's because they're not of a sheep. If a person does believe, it's proving that they're a sheep. They don't become a sheep. They've been a sheep. The only way they would believe is because God had already drawn them. Doesn't 44 say that, I have, that the Father has to draw you before you can come to me? So anybody that comes to him in verse 40 has already been worked upon by God because he's one of the ones that were given to Jesus Christ to die for. 40 isn't the condition for 39. 39 is a condition for 40. I was taught a memory verse, John 6, 37. Him that, cometh unto, him, that, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. My wife and my brother learned that in Bible school many, many years ago. It was called John 6, 37b. Do you know what B means for? you know what B is on a verse reference for? The second half of the verse. Right. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And that's what we learned. But look at the first half of that verse. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. What comes first? It's God's plan of salvation. It's God's covenant of salvation. It's God's election. It's God's choice of men that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But let him that glorieth glory in the Lord. This is why we glory in the Lord. The whole crowd went away. The disciples came to Jesus and said, they were offended at the way you're talking. Jesus said, didn't I explain to you, 65... Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. It doesn't really matter what kind of speech I use. If God's drawn them, they're going to come to me. Notice the work of God in salvation. It's not that He's trying. He wasn't disappointed in this turn of events. He asked His twelve, do you want to go with them? Rejoice in it, brethren. And Peter gave that wonderful answer. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Jesus always has that in mind. He, he knows exactly how to put these verses together and understand the concept, and so do we. Because He's given us an understanding of these things. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Him that cometh to me I will raise up again at the last day. But who comes? The ones given to me by my Father that He draws. 
He gave them to me in verse 38. He draws them in verse 44. It's all the work of God that leads to anyone ever believing the gospel. And believing the gospel is not the means, condition, or instrument of gaining eternal life. It's laying hold of it for your own assurance and confidence and knowing that you're one of God's elect and that these verses apply to you and that Jesus is your Savior. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. That is why that text in 1 Timothy 6 is so precious to me. And over the last 24 months, I have quoted to you about 41 times. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they do not trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they may be rich in good works, willing to distribute, ready to communicate. Are you with me? that they may lay hold on eternal life and lay up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. That is what faith does. Then that is what baptism does. Then that is what good works do, including money to the poor. You lay hold of eternal life by getting your hands on it. I know it's mine because I have the works that prove it. Because faith without works is dead. A man cannot be justified by faith. He must be justified by works. Faith is not enough. James chapter 2. That's how it fits together. I hope you all see it, understand it, and know it. Jesus didn't come to try to save us. Jesus came to save us. God gave him a work to do on earth. It was based in eternity by the everlasting covenant. He came and fulfilled the legal payment that needed to be made that resulted us being accepted in the beloved. He went to heaven. God accepted him. We're accepted in him. He's going to come for us any day. He's just waiting for his enemies to heap up all the wrath that God can muster. And then he will tread the fierceness of the, of the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. And he will be riding a white horse dripping with the blood of his enemies. But we will be behind him on white horses and we will inherit the heaven and the earth as the children of God. When Jesus will present us to him, I am not ashamed to call these brethren my father. These are the children that you've given me. Did Brother Newell read that to us? I am not ashamed to call thee. I'm ashamed for him to call me a brother, but I'm glad he's not ashamed to call me a brother. If, if, if you know what I mean, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. I and the children which thou hast given me. How many will be missing? Not one. How many will be there? Every single one of them. Why did God do all of this? that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. That's right. And that Jesus Christ could have a whole lot of brothers. He did not want to have just one son. Right. Can I prove that with the Bible? Does Romans eight twenty nine say that he might be the firstborn among many brethren? Right. He's the firstborn, so what does that mean we're going to do? He's big brother. We give him all the attention, all the affection, all the glory, and all the honor. But we're joint heirs with him. Of God, Romans chapter eight. Amen. What can what can we say to these things? Right. If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of His word. Amen.